continuing our series in the book of Ezra. Ezra chapter 6. Then Darius the king made a decree, and search was made in Babylonia, in the house of the archives where the documents were stored. And in Ecbatana, the citadel that is in the province of Media, a scroll was found on which this was written, a record. In the first year of Cyrus the king, Cyrus the king issued a decree. Concerning the house of God at Jerusalem, let the house be rebuilt, the place where sacrifices were offered, and let its foundations be retained. Its height shall be sixty cubits, and its breadth sixty cubits, with three layers of great stones and one layer of timber. Let the cost be paid from the royal treasury. And also let the gold and silver vessels of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar took out of the temple that is in Jerusalem and brought back to Babylon, be restored and brought back to the temple that is in Jerusalem, each to its place. You shall put them in the house of God. Now therefore, Tatnai, governor of the province beyond the river, Shethar, Bozani, and your associates, the governors who are in the province beyond the river, keep away. Let the work on this house of God alone. Let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews rebuild this house of God on its site. Moreover, I make a decree regarding what you shall do for these elders of the Jews for the rebuilding of this house of God. The cost is to be paid to these men in full and without delay from the royal revenue, the tribute of the province from beyond the river. And whatever is needed, bulls, rams, or sheep for burnt offerings to the God of heaven, wheat, salt, wine, or oil, as the priests at Jerusalem require, let that be given to them day by day without fail, that they may offer pleasing sacrifices to the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and his sons. Also, I make a decree that if anyone alters this edict, a beam shall be pulled out of his house, and he shall be impaled on it, and his house shall be made a dunghill. May the God who has caused his name to dwell there overthrow any king or people who shall put a hand to alter this or to destroy this house of God that is in Jerusalem. I, Darius, make a decree, let it be done with all diligence." Then, according to the word sent by Darius the king, Tatnai the governor of the province beyond the river, Shethar Bozani, and their associates did with all diligence what Darius the king had ordered. And the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Edo. They finished their building by the decree of the God of Israel and by decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And this house was finished on the third day of the month of Adar in the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king. And the people of Israel, the priests and the Levites and the rest of the returned exiles celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy. They offered at the dedication of this house of God 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs, and as a sin offering for all Israel, 12 male goats, according to the number of the tribes of Israel. And they set the priests in their divisions and the Levites in their divisions for the service of God at Jerusalem as it is written in the book of Moses. On the fourteenth day of the first month, the returned exiles kept the Passover. For the priests and the Levites had purified themselves together. All of them were clean. 
So they slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the returned exiles, for their fellow priests, and for themselves. It was eaten by the people of Israel who had returned from exile, and also by everyone who had joined them and separated himself from the uncleanness of the peoples of the land to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. And they kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy, for the Lord had made them joyful and had turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them so that he aided them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. Let's pray. God, as we come to your word, we ask that you would open our eyes to see wonderful things in it. Please soften our hearts that we might receive it with joy and respond in your strength. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Some years back, I was going to do a restoration project. I'd acquired an old beat-up bike, and I thought I would restore it to its former glory. And for a while, the bike just sat there. The project not started. And then eventually, though, I did the first step. I took all of the pieces and all of the components off of it. But then the work stopped. But then eventually I did the next step, stripping off and sanding off all the old paint from the frame. And then the work again stopped. Start, stop, start, stop. And eventually I abandoned the project and the frame of the parts went to a metal collector. The restoration unfinished. Our text this evening comes on the heels of Ezra chapters 4 and 5. In chapter 4, there was opposition against the rebuilding work of the temple, and the work had stopped. In chapter 5, though, there was a glimmer of hope that through the ministry of God's prophets, the work had restarted. But the chapter ends with ominous storm clouds looming on the horizon Because a letter had been written by Tatnai, the governor, to the king, Darius, wanting the work to stop. So what would happen? Would the work continue? Or would the work again be stopped and left unfinished? Chapter 6 is a text that demonstrates God's continued commitment to restore his people. Indeed, it's a part, this is the part of Ezra where we see the temple rebuilding finished. And Ezra 6 shows us this, that God finishes the restoration work he starts. It may be easy for you to give up hope at times, to say, I don't see any way God could bring wholeness to this broken world. Sure, he was working, and maybe he is working, but it's start, stop, start, stop. Never finished. Maybe personally as well. Will he finish the work he started in me? Or in the end, will I just be left incomplete? Rough chiseled marble, not the finished article. Unfinished. Is that what's going to happen? 
No, 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 Ezra 6 says. What God brings to the starting line, he will carry to the finish. God finishes the restoration work he starts. Three things this text shows us about this restoration work that God finishes. It is in unexpected ways. It is for his worship and it is for our joy. God finishes the restoration work he starts. So first, God finishes his restoration work in unexpected ways. So we're chapter 5 left off with the storm clouds brewing. Chapter 6, verses 1 to 15, bring fresh air to God's people. Tatanai, the governor's letter, had made it to King Darius. And in a response perhaps unexpected by Tatanai, a massive search goes underway to find any record of Cyrus's original decree for the rebuilding of this temple. And this record of the decree is found. We're familiar with the contents of the decree from the opening verses of chapter 1, but here in this record of the decree being made, we get a bit more insight into what was said. Layers of stones and timber, costs paid from the royal treasury, temple artifacts returned, even dimensions. Many have noted that these dimensions vary from Solomon's temple in 1 Kings 6, but It seems that rather than the difference being a result of a scribe's error or being lost in translation somehow, it seems that Cyrus's dimensions refer not only to the temple proper, but the grounds as well. And so you have this decree from a pagan king to rebuild the house of the Lord. And this search seems to have gone far and wide. Because a record of Cyrus's decree was eventually found, not in Babylon proper, but about 280 miles away, in Ecbatana, the summer residence of Cyrus and Persian kings. Perhaps not an illogical place, but an unexpected one? It's like when you find that $20 bill in your pocket of some pants you haven't worn in a while. There? How? Did I really put it there? There it is. Unexpected. But what's more, Darius' response goes further in verses 6 to 10. Because he not not only allows for the work, he promises payments for the work. He tells Tatanai, who was trying to stop the work, to stay away, to let it alone, to allow the rebuild to go on. But even more, Tatanai is ordered not just to let the work Go on, he's ordered to help it. Verse 8, what you shall do. He has an order to help. In fact, the cost was to be paid in full and without delay from the royal revenue, the tribute of the province from beyond the river. That's Tatnai's place. Materials for the building, even animals and goods for sacrifices. The cost was going to come out of Tatnai's own pocket. And so in an unexpected twist, the one who opposed the work would now provide for it. But Darius wasn't done yet, was he? Because he not only gave permission for the work and not only gave payment for the work, he also ordered protection for the work. Verses 11 and 12 describe a a pretty aggressive policy against anyone who tried to disturb it, don't they? A beam pulled out of that guy's house Impaled on that beam, his house a dunghill. 
Disturbing this restoration work would cost a man his life. But not only his life, his dignity with it. A pagan king defending the work of God. Unexpected? Or is it? Because even though Cyrus made a decree and Darius made a decree, these are decrees of kings, aren't they? Pagan kings. But there was another king at work, was there not? Verse 14 says that they finished their building by the decree of the God of Israel and by decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. The work was finished. The temple rebuilt. A momentous occasion. Rebuilt, finished by decrees. Yet there are these earthly pagan kings, Cyrus and Darius, and the author even looks forward down the timeline into the time of Artaxerxes in the days of Nehemiah. There are these earthly pagan kings, but the ultimate decree that finished this restoration work came from the king of kings. Unexpected? God used these pagan kings in service of his plan. Does this surprise you? Proverbs 21.1 puts it, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Sometimes God does work in the ways we expect. That is true. But sometimes he works in ways we don't. Through circumstances we don't expect. Through people we don't expect. Through kings we don't expect. But pastor, you're telling me that my circumstances that are so, so difficult could be used by God to restore me? You're telling me that these people in my life who are so far from the Lord, God could use them for restorative work? You're telling me that our government, even though I see it taking steps further and further away from honoring the Lord, you're telling me God can use that to bring about restoration? The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. King Cyrus, King Darius, the king of kings. So maybe you're looking out at the political landscape of our day and you don't see any hope for the church to flourish in our day and age. He used the pagan kings of the day of Ezra. He can use any government he wants. Yes, we can and should mourn the ways that we see our society not honoring to the Lord. But we should not lose confidence in the God who reigns. Jesus Christ is building his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We can have confidence in God. And the same goes personally for us as well. Circumstances, relationships, even the hardships we face. How could God be working in and through all of this? Yes, we mourn the painful circumstances and relationships that we face. And they're a deep burden. And our hearts groan with a deep longing for the restoration in light of our present suffering. But Christian, do not give up hope. It may just be that God is at work even 
through that suffering in an unexpected way to finish his restoration work in you may just be. I'm reminded of Paul's exhortation in Romans 5. We rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame. For those of us who believe, we can trust him that he will finish his restoration work even in ways we don't expect. And if you're here tonight and you have not yet trusted in the Lord, the God of the Bible, this is a word for you as well because there certainly are rulers and governments and leading people of our day who do indeed have great influence. And it may seem like the only choice we have is to listen and submit to those powers that be in our day. But while it may seem like the powers that be in our day are the ones who are in control, that they ultimately rule, there is a king of kings who is in ultimate control, who is over all, and all must acknowledge and worship God, the Lord, the king of kings. Have you? The king of kings finishes the restoration work he starts, sometimes in unexpected ways. But second, God finishes the restoration work he starts for his worship. So as the work on the temple is finished in verses 13 to 15, the next thing that happens is worship. The temple wasn't finished to have some sort of sentimentality about the past, but for worship in the present. And we see the dedication of this temple in verses 16 to 18. You have all the people gathered together at the temple. The people of Israel, God's people, priests and Levites, spiritual leadership, and the rest of the exiles, the whole crowd, gathered at Jerusalem, the rebuilt temple, and their worship is as it is written in the book of Moses. It was worship by the book. There was a dedication with sacrifices, bulls, rams, lambs. There was a sin offering, 12 male goats for the sins of the people. They knew their place as a restored people. Their restoration hinged not on their merit, but on God's mercy. They knew it. There is a real restoration of this remnant. They're in the right place. They are the right people. It's the right process. And to be sure, this was not as grand as the dedication at Solomon's temple. We read about that in 1 Kings 8. It tells us that on that occasion, Solomon offered up 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep. So the 700 animals of this occasion would have paled in comparison to that. But this was not a low-ball offering. Fewer in number, but full in heart. It's like the widow's might. She gave all she had. Their worship was not in the beauty of grandeur, but in the beauty of holiness. And so the temple is dedicated, 
And then the Passover's kept. In verses 19 and 22, we see that they're back in the right rhythms of proper worship, keeping the Passover at the proper time. Appropriate, isn't it? The Passover, Israel's annual reminder of how God brought his people out of slavery in Egypt and through the Red Sea, how he upheld them by his, he, he upended mighty world powers and he held them up as people as on eagles' wings. And it's significant that right after God's people have been brought out of Egypt through the Red Sea, they set up the tabernacle and they worship. And so here in Ezra 6, it's as if God has brought his people through a new exodus. Out of slavery in Babylon, into the promised land once again. He started this restoration work when he stirred up the heart of Cyrus to allow the people to return to Jerusalem. And now the restoration was there. He had restored them to what they once were, the people of God. God finished what he'd started. They had built the temple. They'd celebrated the Passover. They worshipped. It's in those moments when we recognize that we've experienced the Lord's work in powerful ways that our hearts are drawn to worship, isn't it? I think back to a backpacking trip I was on in high school We were camping um, for a week and a half or so, something like that, hiking long miles every day. And after getting to the place where we were supposed to camp each night, it felt like it was a job completed, like we'd arrived. (laughs) But I remember our leader, before we were allowed to take our backpacks off, our group leader had us circle up in a circle, these teenage, sweaty, smelly boys, (laughs) and we paused in prayer of thanks to the Lord. And we sang the doxology. We worshipped. That is, of course, the proper response, isn't it? God finishes the restoration work he starts. Yes, at times in unexpected ways, but he does it for his worship. He's the king of kings. He's worthy of praise. Does reflecting on God's redemptive work in your life lead your heart to sing? How often our hearts grow cold when we consider these foundational realities of our salvation. Friends, don't let your hearts grow cold when you think about all that God's done for you. When you remember the Lord's mercy to you, don't let your heart grow cold. Instead, when you remember God's Mercy, his grace, his love, his kindness towards you. Let your heart sing. But also, how often do our hearts grow grow cold in pursuing holiness? The people of Ezra 6 were zealous for right, holy, acceptable worship. Separated from uncleanness, right sacrifices, worship by the book. Shouldn't this be the attitude that characterizes us as well? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you. In view of God's mercies, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. Abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Remembering his restoration work in our lives ought to spur us on and stir us up to live lives of pure and holy worship to him.
And even in moments like this, how good is it to gather for worship on Sunday mornings and on Sunday evenings? It's no small thing, is it? It's not just a come in, come out kind of operation. We come to remember and celebrate God's restoration work in our lives, how good he's been to us. And we sing to the Lord as our Savior. We worship him. Is this not what the redeemed will do for all of eternity? We just sang that we will feast in the house of Zion. My mind's drawn to Revelation 7, where it says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one can number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Worship of the King of Kings. When we consider God's work in our lives, oh, our hearts ought to sing and worship. God finishes the restoration work he starts for his worship. But yes, he also finishes his restoration work for our joy. And that's a good thing. Because it could be easy if we're not careful to get the wrong idea about these people's worship, to get the wrong sense of it. Because at the dedication ceremony, they did offer 12 male goats as a sin offering. A solemn occasion, to be sure. And during the Passover celebration, we see that they had purified themselves and separated themselves from uncleanness. Solemn, weighty things, of course. But even though this solemn and weighty nature was surely part of their worship, it was not the loudest note of it. What stands out most about their worship was that it was full of joy. Verse 16, the people of Israel, the priests and the Levites and the rest of the returned exiles celebrated the dedication of the house of God with joy. Verse 22, and they kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy. And again in verse 22, for the Lord had made them joyful. Their worship was not drab and dour. It was jumping for joy. It reminds me of growing up at summer camp when we did times of camper worship. And there were songs praising the Lord, hand motions, jumping up and down. We see some of it in middle school group, which is a good thing. It warms my heart when I see that. Singing praises to the Lord at the top of our lungs, shouting the name of God with exuberance. (laughs) And it seems like this worship of the returned exiles in chapter 6, it seems like it was a lot less like a lecture hall and a lot more like that camper worship. Because God does not save his people so that they will be sullen. No, God brings his people out of bondage into freedom, he restores his people so that they might rejoice. 
As the Westminster Catechism famously puts it, what is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And so the Christian life is not of being dour and drab, but full of joy. And of course, this doesn't mean just walking around with a fake smile on, saying things are going really well, even if they aren't. That's not the kind of joy that this is talking about. It's a joy that's far deeper. It's a joy that transcends circumstances. It goes deep to the core, since this joy comes from being restored to our Creator. That's real joy. And so, no matter our circumstances, no matter the start, stop, start, stop kind of situation that we're in, whether it's large-scale and global or deeply personal, we can have joy in knowing that God will indeed finish the restoration work He starts. And we can know that He does this. Because we remember he has finished his work, this restoration work. Although perhaps in what may have seemed like an unexpected way. It was through a baby. Born in a stable. Laid in an animal feeding trough. In a backwater town. And even as he grew up, Ringing in our heads are the words of Isaiah that he had no former majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. And his leadership, it was not in the power and might of a strong hand, but in service and in humility. And his victory was not achieved by him impaling his enemies on the cross, but it was by him himself being impaled on a cross for our sin, bearing the curse of sin for us, our Passover lamb. And with his final breath, he cried out, It is finished. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Yes, God finishes the restoration work he starts. May each one of us worship this God. And may we know his joy. That's our hope, isn't it? That we can confidently say that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Yes, it may happen in some unexpected ways at times. But it will happen. And we can worship with joy. Let's pray. Well, God, we thank you and praise you that you're a God who completes the work he starts. Thank you for sending Jesus for us to restore us to you that you might be our God and that we might be your people. Please make us more and more into people who trust you even when things don't seem to be going as we would have planned. And please give us hearts that long to worship you, and please fill us with the joy that comes from being restored to our Creator. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.